Today, we are going to continue upon our study of uh, the farewell discourse of Jesus Christ. And, you know, as, um, as I was thinking about the series, and you may have read this in the back of the program uh, two weeks ago. If you didn't, you might have already recognized this, but the, the idea or the, the title of this sermon series came from the last episode of the story MASH, the, the, the television series MASH. Goodbye, farewell, and amen. It was the most watched television show at the time in the history of TV. And it still is the most watched produced show. The only things that have exceeded it in viewership has been a few Super Bowls. Uh, yeah, that's it's still... 35 years later, 34, 35 years later, still the most watched produced TV show in the history of TV. Uh, just, you know, if, I'm going to ask a question, and I'll just warn you, if you were born after 1983, you cannot, you cannot raise your hand. <laughs> How many of you were with me watching that final episode? Yeah, look at that. Quite a few people. We remember that because it was the end of the Korean War. Uh, three years of conflict, three years of living together, of serving together. And uh, if you were watching it, you were probably moved as a lot of people were at the end, when, especially when Colonel Potter would go around and Sherman Potter would, would give his farewells and his goodbye to each of the individuals that he'd been serving with. And I kind of reflect back and think of how it might have been with Jesus, with guys he'd been with for three years and going around and telling his goodbyes and saying things that aren't recorded here, but maybe in addition to what we see. How that must have been emotional impact on them and, uh, and why they would have felt the way that they would have, you know, the, the, the sadness and, and the, the discouragement and the sorrow of, of that situation. I think we experience that and we can understand that. Uh, but it's interesting, the, the Korean conflict or war ended uh, not with a victory and not even with a peace treaty. It ended in a truce. In fact, South Korea never even signed the truce. It's a truce between the United States and the United Nations and North Korea and China. And so today, if you go there and if you go to that, what we know is the 38th parallel, the, the uh, DMZ, let's just keep it at that. The DMZ is the most heavily armored border and guarded border in the world because true peace has never come to that peninsula. The victory that the North wanted when they invaded the South never came. Kind of like the victory that I think some of the disciples were expecting. Some of the disciples were expecting Jesus to sweep in and take over, and it just never happened. Instead, they're hearing words of death and sacrifice and going away and leaving you. And so they're, they're feeling this. And if you've been here the last couple weeks, you hear Jesus trying to comfort them, comfort them with words of, I'm coming back. And I'm preparing a place for you. Words like, you're going to do even greater things than I've ever done. Ask anything in my name, I will do it. And then last week he said, you can be 
a great producer of fruit. And he encourages them to be this producer of fruit. And so I can imagine there's a bit of encouragement. I can think, wow, okay, greater things, anything, fruit producer, all right. And then Jesus says these words, starting in 15, 18. He says, if the world hates you, keep in mind it hated me first. Then in verse 20 of John 15, he says this, if they persecuted me, they will persecute you. And then he tops it off in chapter 16, verse 2. The time is coming when anyone who kills you will think they are offering a service to God. That's the time where if I was a disciple, I'd have said, time out. <laughs> time out. Come on, Jesus. Man, I understand this do greater things stuff. That's kind of cool. Ask anything and you'll do it? Ah, I can get that. Bearing fruit? Mm, that sounds like a lot of fun. But persecution? Hatred? Killing? Come again? <laughs> I, can, I would be there and say, Lord, did you mean anyone who wants to kill you? Well, think they're doing favor to, to, to the Lord. Or maybe anyone who dreams about killing me. Or maybe even anyone who tries to kill me. But that's not what Jesus said. Jesus said, anyone who kills you will think they're doing a service or bringing an offering to God. We know that at least 11 of the 12 disciples, we believe from history and from what we know and suffered this death of being killed. In fact, later in John, Jesus tells Peter how he's going to die, and it's going to be a crucifixion. And so these men are sitting there, and they've just heard, after all this comforting news that Jesus has been telling them, that you're going to be persecuted, you're going to be hated, and you're going to be killed. What do you say after that? What next, Jesus? John 16, chapter 4, as he wraps up his final discourse, what does Jesus say next? He says this, I've told you this so that when their time comes, you will remember that I warned you about them. I did not tell you this from the beginning because I was with you, but now I am going to him who sent me. None of you asks, where are you going? Rather, you are filled with grief because I have said these things. Then he says this, but very truly I tell you, it is for your good that I am going away. Unless I go away, the advocate will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. When he comes, he will prove the world to be in the wrong about sin, righteousness, and judgment. A couple weeks ago, Jesus hinted at this additional helper that was going to come, this counselor. And now again, he brings up and he says, if I'm going to leave, he actually says here, it's for your benefit. It's good that I leave. I can imagine them thinking right now, oh, no, it isn't. And he's saying, no, it's good. But he said earlier, if you remember in chapter 14, when I go, I will not leave you as orphans. I'm going to leave this comforter. I'm going to leave this one who will come and walk with you and will help you and will guide you and will teach you. And he says, but it's gotta, I've got to go if that's going to happen. 
And so we hear this story and, and we hear what Jesus is saying and we hear this, see this great teaching on the story of the Trinity, God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. And Jesus is unpacking it a little more. And he says, I tell you what, you, you're, it's to your advantage that I go because this Holy Spirit can come. And he says, it's going to be his job first to prove the world wrong. To prove the world wrong. I like that. <laughs> he says, here he is. He's going to come, and his first duty is to prove the world wrong. Some versions, maybe your King James Version, I think, says to reprove. Other versions use the word convict. But it's even stronger than a conviction. Because sometimes when we get conviction in, in our minds, we start thinking of, oh, you know, um, maybe for Lent we're on a diet. And last night before we went to bed, we had a Snickers bar. <laughs> and you start feeling, ah, I feel convicted. Yeah, I feel convicted. Or maybe a little more serious. Maybe you're having a discussion with a very close friend and you say some unkind words and something you shouldn't have said and you go home and you start to think about it and all of a sudden you feel convicted. It's, 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 a, it's a good thing that you feel convicted, but this word here goes far beyond that. You've heard of someone saying that you're both the judge and the jury, right? Well, this word is more like, in fact, some commentator says, you are the sheriff or the Holy Spirit is the sheriff, he's the prosecutor, and he's the judge. All three. The Holy Spirit comes as convictor. He's the sheriff. He apprehends the guilty party. He's the prosecutor. He arraigns them and brings the charges. And he even tries the case. And he's the judge who renders the verdict. Guilty. That is the power of the Holy Spirit. And he comes to convict. He is, the he is the apprehender. He is the arraigner. And he brings the verdict. It's interesting as we read this and as we look at this a little deeper, one thing we find out, it is the Holy Spirit's job to convict. Some Christians get in our minds that it's our job to convict. It's our job to share the good news, the gospel of Jesus Christ. It's our job to share and to teach and to live lives. And it's our, God, it's our job, as we talked about last week, to live with the character of Christ and to, and to conduct ourselves in the ways of Christ. But it's the Holy Spirit's job to come into a life and convict. And so that is the first reason that Paul gives, or that Jesus gives, excuse me, for the disciples benefiting from the Holy Spirit. It is the Holy Spirit will convict the world. He will convict the world. And it's all something we normally don't think of. Normally we think of the Holy Spirit as being sent for the Christians, right? For you and for me, and the Holy Spirit helps us. But Jesus is saying here that the Holy Spirit has come to an unbelieving world. To an unbelieving world, the Holy Spirit comes to convict of three things. To convict of sin, of righteousness, and judgment. And he comes, and it says, Jesus expounds on this a little more in verse 9. He says, he, he convicts about sin because people do not believe in me. Has anyone ever asked you what's the greatest sin in the world? Or have you ever asked what's the greatest sin? Is it robbing a bank? Is it murder? Is it, you know, mass murder? Is it, you know... Uh, Genocide, what's the worst sin? Jesus only identifies one sin, just one sin, and it's those who do not believe in Christ. 
It's the door that slams shut the hope for salvation for souls. Do you remember back in two weeks ago, chapter 14, verse 1, the first thing Jesus said when he was telling them what was going to happen. He says, let not your hearts in trouble be troubled. Believe in God. Believe in me. Believe in me. The first sin that he will convict the world of is their lack of belief in him. It's the same message he gave to his disciples. The greatest sin, the singular sin, is the sin of unbelief. And when the Holy Spirit looks at the world and he sees an unbelieving world, he says, guilty, guilty. And then he goes on, the next verse 10, he says, about righteousness, he's going to convict us about righteousness because I am going to the Father where you can see me no longer. Jesus is not going to be physically present. But we must have an awareness. We have to have some awareness of the holiness of God if we're going to realize our depravity. The world has to see the holiness of God in some way in order to understand how depraved we are, how far short of the goal we come. And he says, I'm going to convict the world of this righteousness. People aren't living up to the standard. Jesus set the standard. It was a standard of, of uh, integrity, purity, virtue, uprightness, correctness, uh, correct feelings, correct actions. And he sets a goal for us to be that way. He set it right off the bat. Sermon on the Mount, top of Matthew. You start reading that, and you can't get away from Christ's call to righteousness. He says, you thought it was okay? You thought it was bad to murder somebody? I'm telling you, don't murder, but don't hate. I'm going to raise the standard. Don't commit adultery. You've heard that. I'm telling you, don't look at someone with lust. And he keeps raising the standard again and again and again, even in the uh, Beatitudes, he says, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be filled. He says later in chapter 6, but seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things shall be added unto you. And so he says these people are out there, the world is out there, they need to know that they fall short. And he says, so I'm going to convict them of righteousness. They don't measure up. They don't make the standard. And finally, he says this in verse 11. He will convict the world about judgment because the prince of the world now stands condemned. Again, this is where it starts really getting tough. A lot of people say we never preach judgment anymore in the church. And it's not an easy thing to preach. But Christ is saying here, there is a judgment that awaits the world who do not believe and fail to measure up to a standard of righteousness demanded. We are coming to the season we call Easter. It's led off, you might say, on Good Friday by the sacrifice of Christ on the cross. And I would submit to you, 
That the, the sacrifice of Christ, the death of Christ, the good news of the gospel, which is Christ giving his life, makes no sense whatsoever. It makes no sense whatsoever unless it is to remedy an incredibly serious problem. Unless it is to deliver us from a disastrous future because we have done something disastrous in the sight of God. Why else would Jesus come to die? He, did, he didn't come and die to make me a better father or you a better parent or a better student or a better worker. I mean, if he wanted to do that, he could have come down and held a big seminar, right? How, can you imagine that? The Son of God is going to be in Cleveland, Ohio this weekend, and he's going to teach you how to be a better parent. And so we all come, and we all, we all get this good news of how to be a better parent. We get this good news of how to be more honest people, of how to be more caring, of how to be better employees, better businessmen, be more successful. And we get all this good news, and we take it in. And then he could have looked around, and he said, job done. And then he could have gone, whoop, back up, just like he did in Acts. Job done, completed, no suffering, no cross. But that, he didn't come to make us better people. He came to save us from disaster, from judgment. He came to save us from this judgment that he's talking about here that is for the world. Martin Luther says, mankind is divided into two kingdoms, one under the rule of Satan and sin and one under the rule of Christ and righteousness. Both cannot stand. One kingdom will crumble. This is not North and South Korea that are going to be live side by side for many, for all these years. Uh, that's probably going to crumble too at some point. But these two sides, one side will crumble, and it will be the side of Satan, and those that have taken his side will crumble with him. They will meet his fate. And Jesus has come, and he's come to Take that punishment for us. It makes no other sense. Why would he die to make me a better person when he could just come and show me? Christ has defeated, judged, and condemned Satan through his death and resurrection. But all who pay allegiance to this condemnation, this condemned ruler, will fall to the same condemnation. That's the, that's the bad news. But Jesus came to bring good news. In fact, Jesus came and did the only thing that could be done. The only thing that could be done. When Jesus, when God said to Adam and Eve, you eat of that fruit, you shall surely die and send it into the world. And, and we all sinned and God said you will die. He just didn't mean a physical death. But it was a spiritual death. It was a death of separation from him. And Jesus Christ came and the only way that he could deliver us from this judgment that is talked about in this verse is to offer himself within the next 24 hours from, the, from when he said this. From the time he said this, 24 hours later, he'd have hung on the cross and that kingdom of Satan would be defeated. And that's the news for the world. The, the Holy Spirit came for an unbelieving world. He came to convict it. 
But in that conviction, he draws people. He produces the evidence. He speaks. And he uses us to reach as many as possible. He uses us because the Holy Spirit comes for us too. That's the second point. Verse 12. I have much more to say to you, more than you can bear now. But when he, the spirit of truth, comes, he will guide you into all truth. He will not speak of his own, but he will speak only what he hears. And he will tell you what is yet to come. The second reason that Christ came was for us Christians and for those disciples. It was so that he could guide us into all truth. Jesus had said just a little bit earlier, I am the way, the truth, and the life. The Holy Spirit will guide you into all truth. He will guide you into me. He is, John says, or Jesus says in John 14, 7, the spirit of truth. John 14, 26 says, he will teach you and remind you of what I've said. Which is wonderful because it was very important that he could teach and remind people. Because it was going to be 10, 15, 20 years later, maybe even longer, before these disciples, some of them would sit down and start writing the things of Christ down on paper or what they would write on those days. And it was the Holy Spirit that would remind them, oh, yeah, oh, yeah. And the Holy Spirit says, I'll remind you, and oh, yeah, Jesus said this. And oh, yeah, Paul said this, or Peter said this, and, and, and John said this. And, and so they start writing down, and, and the Holy Spirit reminds them. In fact, Peter says, when he talks about, in Second Peter, about the prophets, he says the prophets wrote as they were led by God, carried by the Holy Spirit. They would write. So the Holy Spirit guides us into all truth. But this just wasn't for the disciples. He guides you into truth and he guides me into truth. Let me ask you something. Who is the best person to interpret a book that they wrote? The author, right? Isn't the author the best person to interpret a book? And so when you're studying the Bible and you say, Lord, I need to understand it, the Bible says the Holy Spirit will guide us into all truth. It's truth that he wrote. He inspired he guides us into truth. And then there's something else that the Holy Spirit does. It's in verse 14. He will glorify me because it is from me that he will receive what he will make known to you. All that belongs to the Father is mine. That is why I said the Spirit will receive me and he will make known to you. That verse 13 said he will not speak of his own. He will speak about Christ, he will speak of Christ, he will speak for Christ. The Holy Spirit's job is to glorify Jesus Christ. And he does that for Christ, and he does it for us. How does he glorify Christ? He reminds us, just like he reminds us, of truth. He reminds us of his sacrifice that he made for us. He reminds us of the condition we were in before we accepted him as Savior. He reminds us of the suffering that Christ endured. He makes real for us what Christ did. In the book, The Good and Beautiful God, the writer says this, the cross of Jesus is God's way of doing all that he could do for us. It's everything that he could do. 
And the Holy Spirit comes and reminds us again and again of Christ's sacrifice. He reminds us again and again of what God did for us. The author, John, James Smith, goes on. He says this, and yet we wonder, does God really love me? Am I important to God? Does God really care about me? And the answer keeps coming back, what more could he have done? What more could he have done? Romans 5, 8 tells us that God demonstrated his love for us, and while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. And the Holy Spirit reveals that again and again to us. And it reminds us of Christ's sacrifices, and it glorifies him because he paid the price for all time. That is, a, that is something to be reminded about every day, Christ's sacrifice for you. Something to be reminded about when you work and when you go to school and when you stay at home, wherever you are, Christ died for you. And as we come to this Easter season, it's even more important to remember, this isn't just something that he came for to make me a better person, to make me a better husband, to make me a better father, to make me a better student. He came to have our sins forgiven, to give us eternal life, to save us from that horrible, horrible outcome that awaits Satan. Every now and then, the Holy Spirit comes and cements it in your heart and mind even greater than you had it before. I'll never forget it. For me, it was a day. It was a March, March, morning, March evening in 1979. I don't remember too many things back from 1979. But this, is, this, one's, this one's here and it's here. We were on tour with the Malone College then, now Malone University Corral. It was spring break, and spring break always came, you know, right around Easter time. So the crowd, we would prepare our music, but we always closed with a series of songs that talked about uh, Easter, songs that talked about uh, the Last Supper, the denial, the betrayal, the cross, and then we always ended up with this song, He's Alive, He's Alive, and it was wonderful. Also during that time, we had some other songs too. And one of those songs, we had an individual in the choir who sang a solo. His name was Milton. Now, Milton was, he's, he was this African-American great brother. But if you would look at him, you would say he belonged on Ohio State's defensive line <laughs> rather than at Malone University Corral. I mean, Milton was this massive individual. He had this, but he had this tender heart, and he had this tenor voice that would make angels sing. <laughs> they wish they could sing, like. And so we were there, and we were there at this concert, and Milton had sang, and then we just finished up singing about the cross and singing about Jesus' amazing grace and singing about the, uh, he's alive. And, and we were on tour, and the first church we were at was a church in Buffalo. First mega church I've ever been in. This church was huge, and it was, it was just 1979, there weren't mega churches around very much, but this church was a mega church, and it was, you know, seemed like much bigger than this on the bottom, and then they had a balcony that was that big, and, and so we had stopped in, and, and we had just finished our concert, poured our hearts out, singing about Jesus Christ and his sacrifice for us. The pastor came up to close, and he looked up at the choir. He says, Melvin? Melvin? We're wondering, we're all looking at each other, who's Melvin? 
Melvin. Finally, he keeps pointing. And he says, oh, you mean Milton? <laughs> Milton's up there going, man. He goes, he goes, Milton. And he goes, he goes, Melvin, Melvin, would you sing us another song? Would you sing another song? And uh, Mel, I mean, Milton. <laughs> Milton's looking around like you and me. We had not planned on songs. We had not planned on any solos or anything like that. And he starts walking down and, and he says, he goes, Melvin, sing us another song. Could think, you could see Melvin's wheels turning. Milton's wheels turning. <laughs> and uh, he waited a minute, and then he, set, then he stepped up to the microphone. And uh, if you close your eyes, especially for me, it sounded just like this.
Holy Spirit fell on us that night. No glory to the Holy Spirit, but pointing us to the cross of Christ. It's probably one of the most amazing places I've ever been in when he finished that day. But God demonstrates his love for us. And that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Do you really, does God really love me? Am I important to God? Does God really care about me? The answer comes back, what more could he have done? some of these things that we hear can be frightening and for the disciples it was persecution and hatred and we feel that in the world today but judgment eternal that's frightening but Jesus Christ has come and he's made a way because he overcame in fact he closes in verse 33 I have told you these things that you may have peace. In this world, you will have trouble. But take heart. I have overcome the world. That's the God we serve. Let's close our eyes and bow our head. And this this morning, if you're in that spot where, you know, I I fit into that world. I have not taken that step of belief. And I'm not living up to righteousness. And I'm headed, I'm headed for punishment, eternal punishment. Right now, just in your seat, would you, would you offer yourselves and say to the Lord, Lord, forgive me. I believe. I believe in you. I trust you. I offer my life to you. If you're someone who's just struggling with, does Jesus love you that much? The answer is yes. He does. He gave himself for you. Let the Holy Spirit remind you of his love for you this week, day after day, moment after moment. Abide in him. Stay close to him. Lord, go with us today. Help us to serve you in a way we would serve one who gave his life for us. Help us to honor you in the way we would one who sacrificed everything for us. Help us to give our lives to the one who has asked. For our commitment, our belief. Lord, help us to live for you. Because you look beyond all our faults. You saw our deep need for you as you hung on that cross. Help us as we go into these Easter weeks, into the holy week that comes after that. Lord, to focus on you, to experience the realness of you in our lives. And if there's any here yet, Lord, that have not made that commitment, that decision for you, May this be the time that that's done. 
as we're dismissed today. Gabe and I are up here. If you want to come talk, we'd be happy to do that. But go this, this week knowing that Jesus Christ loves you, gave his life for you. Live for him. You're dismissed.